All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is the Space Shot, episode 387, Space 2.0, how private spaceflight, a resurgent NASA, and international partners are creating a new space age. This is my chat with author Rod Pyle. Welcome back to the show. The past week has been really busy with space news, especially in the commercial sector. We'll chat a little bit about that today when we hear from author Rod Pyle. We talked about his new book and the space industry in general. I really enjoyed this conversation, so let's dive right in. Today I'm talking with Rod Pyle. He's the author of numerous books, including the most recent one, which is Space 2.0, How Private Spaceflight, a Resurgent NASA, and International Partners Are Creating a New Space Age. Rod, welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me. So let's let's start off with the book, and then we're going to dive into some other topics and just see where the conversation carries us. But uh, first off, what's your book about? Space 2.0 is a look forward about 25 years into the future. Um, we, we had a lot of conversations, the publisher and I, about what it should be and what it should uh, try to accomplish. And we said, you know, let's, let's take a brief look at yesterday, a strong look at today, and then a look at what we might be doing in space the next 25 years. And if, if, if I had to sum up what the book is in, in a phrase, it's really the handbook of the new space age. You know, we've reached this point. Finally, I used to give talks to student groups and so forth. And I keep saying, okay, study hard kids. You know, this new space age is just about here any minute now. And they're kind of, some of them are looking at me like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I think that the launch of the Falcon heavy was really that moment, you know, mm-hmm. it, that we're here, this, this crazy billionaire. He's not crazy, but he's crazy, brilliant billionaire said, I want to build a really big rocket, and it's going to be easy. I'll just put together three Falcon 9s. Well, it turned out it was a lot harder than that, but he did it, and it launched on the day it was supposed to launch, on the hour it was supposed to launch, Mm -hmm. and other than that center core uh, missing the target, it operated perfectly, and it made the very best public relations statement in spaceflight history, which is, hey, look, I could put my personal car in orbit <laughs> and show you video, and there's a guy sitting in it, like with yeah. the Beach Boys with his arm draped over the door. <laughs> so it, it, that, I think, is what the book is. It's a handbook of new space. And more specifically, although I look at human, human health factors in space, I look at destinations, I look at why we should be going at all, um, what are the current launch systems, what's coming, a lot of internationalism. It's a really wide look at this. I think sort of the core, if you bring all that together, is what is the sweet spot here to get humanity into space, both robotically and as human beings, and operating and functioning in the most robust and rewarding way possible, as quickly as possible. So there's NASA, there's the international space agencies, and then there's the private sector in the U.S. and increasingly internationally. What is the best overlap for us to utilize those resources in a way that can get us out there quickly and safely and ultimately benefit not just the people that are going, but especially the people still left back on Earth? 
For sure. Well, I mean, spaceflight affects us in so many ways in our day-to-day lives that we we could not have a functioning modern economy without the space technology that we take for granted. So expanding that and you know bringing new products and new services, I'm really excited for. And I like how the book does look you know towards the future on that. Um, one of the other things that I really appreciated about the book is the fact that you, you've crafted something that is approachable for people that are veterans in the industry and then also creating something that is, you know, a great look for students that are just now reaching out. And I've got a couple professors I'm going to recommend the book to talk a little bit about how you created your message and crafted the the book to be able to reach all of those audiences. Yeah, audience is really a critical conversation. And whenever you're working with a nonprofit, so the NSS uh, underwrote this book. Okay. I've been pitching it for years <laughs> and got interest from a few publishers, but there's always this, there can be a hesitancy towards, you know, how much do we want to spend on doing it? It's risky. You know, all books are risky. So I turned to the, to the National Space Society, who I'd been working with for years, I've been a member since the 80s, and said, would you be interested in underwriting this? And a gentleman named Stan Rosen said, yeah, I'll help. So he went out and raised some money. So there's some kind of implicit, and nobody came after me about it, but there's sort of this implicit assumption that it would be a book that would really appeal to the NSS membership base. And I think it does, but I wanted to go a little broader than that because I really, what I want this book to do is engage people and bring them into organizations like the NSS and say to the general public, look, Space is important. It's not just this big empty thing over your head that has some space station you may have heard something about (laughs) because you know the numbers, you know, a huge percentage of the public doesn't know the space station is still there. They thought it crashed because they're thinking of Skylab or why is it there? (laughs) Same percentage of public that thinks that NASA gets 25% of the federal budget. Oh, my Lord, can you imagine? Oh, that would be going from half of 1% to 25%. (laughs) So this book is to inform people at that level and above and just say, look, let's have a candid, engaged conversation about why this matters to you. Because we can talk all day about, you know, man must move into new frontiers and we must explore and all that. And that's true. And I think that's a beautiful part of of, of what NASA tries to do and does very well. But that's not putting milk and cheese and bread on my table. So what is it about space that's going to be beneficial for the average person? And that was kind of where I was aiming in terms of audience. And um, I had a wonderful editor named James Louder who I, I never – you can't hear people's eye, eyes roll when you're on the phone. But I'm sure he had some of those moments because <laughs> he'd be talking and he'd say, you know, you're really not closing your argument in Chapter 14. And let's move this over here. And I was, uh, yeah, I, I knew he was right in a lot of cases, but you're the author. So you're still kind of, what do you mean? And, okay. So we had some of those moments, but he really helped me focus the book on, on solidly on the right audience, I think. And that was, that was greatly beneficial. So you're absolutely right. That's where it's aimed. And it's hard. And if I may just add one more thing, there was a moment at which I could, they, I knew they're going to do an audiobook version and I got some some suggestions from fans saying, Hey, you should read it. I thought, yeah, maybe I should. I do podcasting and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. So I sat down and read a chapter of it and it is the most grueling, awful experience, <laughs> especially if you're kind of an ADD type like me 
and I don't mean that <laughs> metaphorically, where you've got to keep your 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 tone of voice and your tone of delivery and your pacing and your energy and your pronunciation solid for 10 hours of book reading. I just did like 40 minutes and I was literally ringing with sweat and exhausted. And I thought these guys are at every penny they make. So, um, yeah, that, that's a different conversation, but, uh, thank you for your observation. And that really is where I'm aiming and hopefully for the academic market as well. It's, it's something that, you know, people need to, if they're in the industry, they need to have a sense of where we've been in the past to really fully appreciate where companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are taking the industry. Um, one of the things I'd like to ask you about, too, is you know, commercial space. It's definitely been something that's at the forefront of conversations since the launch of Falcon Heavy. But commercial space has been around a lot longer than Falcon Heavy and Starman. Can you talk a little bit about that? So commercial space, at least in theory, has been around since the early <laughs> 80s. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Space Hab project that was uh, putting that uh, module up in the shuttle bay to extend the, the, mm -hmm. the working space and the research space in there, that was started as a commercial effort. And there are a lot of other companies that raised money but weren't as successful. Sea uh, Launch was another successful one. Ultimately, NanoRacks was another successful one. But there, there's been the phrase kind of bandied about called the false dawn of new space. And I think I, I put that in the book at a couple of spots. That's often said by people that tried to raise money for private launch ventures or private space ventures then and weren't successful. But it's also used by people on the other end of the equation who invested a lot of money in these companies that burned through it and didn't get a lot done. So we had that kind of phase. But out of that came a few very targeted operations for the most part who were successful. Sea Launch launched a number of times, uh, did make a profit ultimately, but not enough to keep them going, at least not as a launch provider. Uh, NanoRacks, of course, has continued on brilliantly as this integration a payload integration company that has standardized interfaces and so forth and is really, to a large part, I think, responsible for sort of the success of the early CubeSat revolution. Um, so there was that whole first movement, that first wave of companies, a few of which succeeded, most of which failed. You know, a Kistler Aerospace and a bunch of other rocket, uh, Hudson. You know, rockets are very sexy, so of course... If you're looking to, <laughs> to raise money as easily as possible, you say, look, we're going to build a rocket. It'll be exciting and spectacular, and look at all the things we can do. That makes a lot of sense, but there's a lot more to it than that, and I think that's, that's where it was kind of underserved. I mean, of course, throughout this, there's a through line of this that is important, which is telecommunications and satellites. That had been going on since the 60s. So that was continuing and, and continues to grow today. I think, I don't remember the statistic. I read it just the other day, but there's supposed to be 25,000 satellites in orbit by 2030 or something. Now there's like 1,500. So that's a fairly significant increase. A lot of them will be small. There'll be, you know, constellations for broadband, broadband coverage and so forth. But that's still a really remarkable achievement. So that's going to continue to grow. And I, I think that's the strong success story that goes through the whole thing. But now what we really need is to be looking at lowering launch costs, reusable vehicles, eventually getting off of the chemical fuel standard and onto something uh, more powerful and that will get us where we want to go faster. And then, of course, the Holy Grail, which is utilizing resources we find in space mm -hmm. to move on and not having to continue to lift all this heavy stuff into orbit every time we want to go somewhere. 
you know, I mean, resource utilization, in, you know, where you're at, what be it Mars or the moon, that's absolutely critical or, you know, habitats for fuel. It's, it's something that I'm really excited to see that technology develop and mature over the coming decades. One of the other things you mentioned is the reusable launch vehicles, and that's something that's really propelled SpaceX into the forefront of the launch uh, service provider marketplace. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, what does that mean for traditional launch providers, be it you know, <laughs> foreign <laughs> with Russia yeah. or you know, even domestically here in the U.S.? Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so so the big move at SpaceX early on was we got to make these things reusable, which means bringing them back and refurbishing them and flying them again. So as he's quite famously shown over and over again, despite mm -hmm. some failures in the beginning, SpaceX has gotten very good at launching a rocket. And unless it's intended to not be reusable, a few are used ex as expendables for the extra performance it gives you, he reserves a certain amount of fuel to fly the rocket back and land it. Now, it's important to note that this isn't a joystick job. These rockets are talking directly to the landing barge <laughs> or to the landing site on land, saying, okay, how far are you? What's the wind speed? What's the sea state if it's the barge? They have their little conversation. And this thing lands itself, which was already remarkable until you saw the Falcon Heavy. You saw those two side stages come back, and it was like, it was identical to the CGI, right? And yeah. There are people online saying, this is a fake. <laughs> it's just like the moon landings. It's not real. Um, so he's really kind of, he's, he's, he's branded and succeeded with a certain kind of reusability. Then there's, um, there's people looking, of course, still at, at rocket planes or space planes, which is a different kind of reusability. That's, as you know, coming back from orbit with some kind of thermal protection mm -hmm. or suborbit and landing horizontally on a runway that's another way of doing it i think once spacex got the i think spacex had the higher hill to climb at first than say something like virgin galactic with their rocket plane because the shuttle had already sort of pioneered that a large part of that science but now that uh, spacex has shown that they can do this successfully that seems to me to be a simpler and more robust system and generally probably safer We'll have to see in operational terms how this carries out for the commercial sector. And of course, internationally, you've got uh, operations like uh, the European Space Agency and Ariane, the French rocket, mm -hmm. which are looking at SpaceX and have been for a number of years and thinking, Jesus, we can't compete with this. Yeah. We don't even have the kind of public, public investment he has privately in some cases. So they're trying to update their hardware, but it's going to be hard for them until they figure out a way to be reusable. Russia, I mean, their expendable rockets are very inexpensive compared to ours, but for them to generate a profit and make it worth doing, they've got some heavy lifting to do. And then there's the wild card, which is China, which has government-sponsored launch vehicles that are fairly affordable, which is why they've been the other big launch provider globally. But now increasingly, small, we think semi-private companies, they say they're private and commercial, but in China, it's always a little hard <laughs> to find that line. Yeah, it's that big gray zone, or maybe it's big red zone between private and public. And um, but there's a number of companies that are experimenting with uh, reusable rockets, and by golly, they look an awful lot like the Falcon Nine, don't they? <laughs> they do. They really do. <laughs> and when asked by a journalist about that in in a recent interview, I saw uh, the, the the gentleman who was 
responding for the Chinese company said, well, of course they do. Why should we reinvent the wheel in so many words? <laughs> and, you know, from their point of view, I could see that we have a few issues with, with intellectual property rights and so forth here, but different systems, different values, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if there's a challenge to the supremacy of private space in America, I'd say it's it's China and, and their reusable vehicles. Um, finally, you've got United Launch Alliance and then in other kinds of, of, of purposing, you've got Virgin Orbit mm-hmm. and uh, Northrop Grumman and so forth. Uh, and these companies, with the exception of Virgin Orbit, are kind of the old, older, old school uh, engineering and aerospace firms from the 1960s forward who have been in this a long time, who got used to the kind of arrangements that NASA and the Air Force and government had, which is cost plus yeah. contracting. <laughs> SpaceX comes along, kicks over the apple cart, says, hey, we're going to do it a different way, has to actually sue the Air Force to get permission to bid to go up against United Launch Alliance. But for reasons of national security, there were some reasons that that agreement was in place. With what's happened now with SpaceX proving its case, it puts companies like ULA under a lot of pressure to innovate. And they are. I mean, they've, they've vastly streamlined their operation. They've vastly streamlined the manufacturing and cost of the Atlas V, for instance, and shut down the, the Delta assembly line for the most part, and are now working on this new rocket called Vulcan that we're not sure exactly how, but is going to be either partially or totally reusable. But they got to move fast because the competition is fierce and SpaceX isn't slowing down. Well, it's that competition is really it's it's breeding a lot of innovation that really has been lacking for the last couple of decades. I mean, with Northrop Grumman and the Omega rocket, it's basically a shuttle SRB or like the old Ares, the Ares one rocket, I think is what it would have been Oh yeah, the um, one after the cancellation. Yeah. yeah. That one's that single kind of matchstick looking. Yeah. The candlestick. <laughs> I don't exactly. think anybody was fond of that. It, it looked kind of dangerous and turned out it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting concept, but it's really, it's, it's forcing these traditional companies to either innovate or die for lack of a better term and this innovation from spacex is forcing these older companies to innovate and you know i'm really excited to see where that takes us you know one of the one of the other things you talk about in your book is all of the different you know the space entrepreneurs like elon musk and jeff bezos what 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 i find interesting about their companies is they're able to present a singular vision and mm. basically set their company on that goal. Can you talk a little bit about how that contrasts with what we've seen with NASA over the you know the past four presidential, you know, four or five presidential administrations? You know, it's something that you mentioned in the book. Just because so much happened between, you know, I think it was I think it was at the end of the book you were talking about how the first draft, and then you know later in the year, Space Force was announced and all that stuff. So it sounded like you had to do quite a bit of yes. uh, rewriting <laughs> after that. Well, it was a seriously moving target. I was sending notes yeah. literally up to the day they were sending this thing off the printer. It's like, no, wait, oh they gosh. changed it from BFR to Starship. You have to correct it. And I just hope you didn't change it again. Yeah, no, they thankfully, I think Starship and, and have Super Heavy, that should hopefully that sticks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's one of those big things that and you were also talking about this with China, how 
that singular vision for a lot of these companies has been, you know, benefits for sure. But what what do you think NASA could do over the next coming decades to try to help solidify their longer term goals in the face of changing presidential administrations? Because ultimately, NASA is an executive yeah. um, agency that's that presents certain challenges. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you work with a hopefully a strong National Space Council, which was rejuvenated by the Trump administration, and that is an advisory group that reports to the president and helps set the course for what NASA is going to do and not do over the coming years. Um, and hopefully that gives you a little more leverage in terms of preventing these inter-administrational shifts from occurring. I mean, we had Constellation ripping along briefly from 2004 in the Bush years, uh, George W. Bush years, and then it wasn't getting funded fully and it was looking more expensive and we had this costly war in the Middle East. And then the Obama administration comes in and says, look, I've got this Augustine report that says this isn't working, so we're going to finish it. So yet another begun and canceled program. Now it did morph into, to some extent, into SLS and Orion. Mm -hmm. But now we're looking at that, at least in part, as possibly not getting completed or if completed, not really being utilized the way originally planned either. So you're right. I mean, with these constantly changing priorities, it has to do also with Congress because they've got constituencies sure. to represent. And I don't care what you do. I don't care where you go, but you got to use big, solid rocket boosters if you're talking to Utah. You know, <laughs> or you got to use that big first-stage chemical booster because I represent Huntsville, Alabama. I mean, that's always that's just part of the American system. That's always going to be there. I think if, if there's any part of a, our program that's going to begin to resemble China, i.e., hey, we've made this decision on where we're going to be in 15 years, the set of decisions, let's go, mush, you know, and off they go. <laughs> it, it happens two ways. First, it happens with private industry, with guys like Musk and Bezos and others saying, here's the part of this we want to work in. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's what we've got to offer. NASA, what can you do with this? So in SpaceX's case, it's the Dragon 2 and the Falcon 9, and ultimately the Falcon Heavy, possibly, and the Lunar Orbiting Gateway, looking increasingly like that might be the case. And then in terms of the Starship slash BFR system, who knows? I mean, the sky's the limit. So those, yeah. those corporations within limits, I mean... Only Jeff Bezos can continue to develop his rocket the only way he wants because – or specifically how he wants because at a billion a year of his own investment, he could do that for 150 years. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So he can kind of say, you know, this is where I'm going. If you guys don't want to march, that's okay. You know, I'll do it on my own. But the other companies need investment from NASA, contracts from NASA. So I think there's, again, that sort of sweet spot. What is the harmony there between those two? And then for NASA on their side, if you want some continuity, one way to assure that is to reduce costs. Internal studies that they did themselves have looked at parts of the SpaceX system and said... I love this part of your book too, by yeah. the way. I'm so glad you mentioned it. <laughs> and depending on the study, it says, you know, they're doing this for anywhere from half to a tenth of what it would cost us to do it. So let's, let's do this. So increasingly, and I was I was actually very gratified to see that 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 Bridenstine uh, announcement because when he said, "Okay, we'll start flying part of this, uh, both people and lunar hardware on uh, on private launch vehicles," because again, 
you know, SLS may end up being very handy, but it's expensive. It's grossly behind schedule. And if you've got these less expensive providers raising their hands saying, Falcon Heavy, ready to go, New Glenn, ready to go, and it's going to cost yeah. this much. By the way, we publish our prices on the internet, so you can see it right there. Then this is really using the strengths of both organizations to achieve the maximum end, and now you've got some momentum going. You're not waiting for these stalled programs to finally crawl forward, and I think it makes these programs harder to kill. It's always harder to put sort of a, a, a brute force metaphor, it's harder to shoot a moving object, right? So if you're trying <laughs> to bring down this, this stampede of, of spacecraft that are going and doing what they're going to do, that's a lot harder than going and rolling a hand grenade under one rocket that's been sitting in place for, you know, 12 years being developed. So I think that yeah. that gives me a lot of hope. Well, and the the thing that I really find interesting too is, you know, and you mentioned this in the book, is that Musk has, you know, shifted. I kind of, I think he really realized that, hey, if we want to get that support from, you know, the Trump administration and also from the public too, is, you know, going to the moon before Mars, it makes sense. Um, and being able to have NASA as a partner for that, I think is really interesting. Um in terms of where where do you see you know the those type of launch providers in the next you know 10 to 20 years who do you think you know what platform is going to be the most dominant as it were i mean are we going to see the sls fly that once a year um if ever <laughs> um so I, I feel like it's you know like in spongebob where they have the little thing where it's like six hours later except it's like one eternity later, we're still right. waiting for that launch. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that it's taken that long. I guess I'm not super surprised, but where do you see you know private companies in the next ten to fifteen years compared to where SLS should be? Well, SLS is no matter how you slice it, at its best, going to be an expensive, occasional use vehicle. Um, I think it's probably going to end up parsing out at more than 1.5 billion per flight. If you look at the whole development cycle, yeah. if you go back to the beginning of Constellation, or and include some of the shuttle development costs, uh, you know, sky's a limit. But e even in, in more absolute terms, I think it's going to be expensive. Um, I kind of see potentially, if, assuming things go as planned and go well, kind of a standardization on Starship. And New Glenn slash New Armstrong and Vulcan, assuming that Vulcan comes along as we hope it does, in terms of launch vehicles for heavy payloads. Well, especially the upper stage too. Uh, you know, yeah. the Aces upper stage too. You mentioned that. Look, it that's is really exciting. exciting. So Aces is, is a an upper stage that can kind of like the Centaur that can go up into orbit and park there, and be used for moving cargo back and in, in, from one orbit to another in Earth orbit, or from the Earth to the Moon and back. It's refuelable. It can sit there on standby for in some cases up to a year at a time, depending on the version. And it's this space tug that we've been talking about since Von Braun was discussing it in the 1940s. So it becomes this incredible um, enabler of, of things that you can do at cislunar space now, because once you get in orbit, now the fun begins. You know, that's you can start doing really exactly. cool stuff. So you're right. You're right. I'm glad you brought that up because that is really another wonderfully enabling part of of this technology in this era. And that may very well be what what keeps those guys uh, very relevant and on the map. 
Well, and I'm glad it's finally getting some traction too. I mean, because part of the original, the you know, STS for the shuttle, the space transportation system, part of that whole you know original platform as it was envisioned was a space tug too. Yeah. So this is something that has been a goal for way longer than I've been alive. So it's glad I'm glad to finally see that there's hopefully some traction. Um, hopefully ULA is successful with that. And this has been a goal since right after I was alive or actually before I was alive and I'm probably double your age <laughs> and we've been waiting all this time. It's like, when are you going to standardize some of these things? And early on when making the pitch to Congress as the, as the shuttle was sold by NASA, yeah, we'd be flying every week. No problem. You know, launch them, land them, hose them down, empty the ashtrays, gas them up and off we go. And as we know, it didn't turn out like that. I think we, we hit one year. We almost did one, one a month. And for the most part, it was about four per year. And it was dangerous. And we lost a couple of yeah. them. And you talked to, I was doing an astronaut panel in Des Moines last week with a bunch of Apollo guys. And uh, at least one of them was not a fan. And I think more of them, probably less vocally, were not fans because it just had too many single points of failure. And it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't engineered the way it had been promised and so on and so forth. So, yeah, a lot of problems. And, and I think it was an aggressive push into unfamiliar technology areas, too. I mean, that whole thermal uh, management problem of these delicate little silica tiles, I'm sure you've seen them. I mean, you, oh, can, yeah. you, can, you can punch your thumb a half inch into it. Yeah because they're just so weak. So it worked, but it was always kind of riding right on the edge of oblivion in a lot of yeah, sadly. engineering ways. Yeah. And um, it was a little ahead of its time. So hence the move back to capsules that, that do more traditional blunt body reentries and so forth. And I think for a long time that'll serve us. But you know, th there's a next step past that, which is, okay, once we built up, th there's, I have a whole chapter on this, as you probably saw, you know, infrastructure is the next thing. Yeah. So we get regular access to orbit that's less expensive. That's great. But we have to get past this spending thousands of dollars to launch a single gallon of water into space because it's just not sustainable. Now, they do that now by recycling water and reprocessing urine and so forth and the moisture and the breathing at the space station using that. But, you know, there's plenty of stuff out there. The moon's got water. The moon's got oxygen in the rocks and oxygen in the water. The moon's got, got glass. The moon's got metal. With the, especially with the advanced manufacturing processes that are coming online in 3D manufacturing exactly. and so forth. Once you're out there and you've got an assembly line set up to, to mine and smelt and repurpose this stuff, now the, the solar system is your oyster. And if you add to that what you can get from asteroids, and eventually when we figure out how to start repurposing orbital debris, we've got millions of tons of metal orbiting the planet now in pieces and in dysfunctional satellites and spent second stages and everything else. You know, that's a lot of money that's up there that's floating around. If you can grab that stuff, crush it down, shred it, smelt it, however you're going to do it, you've got metallic mass up there that could build you a dozen starships that could go to the next star system yeah. with the right propulsion system. So between the utilization of those resources and starting to look at these advanced propulsion systems, high-power propulsion systems, now you're really kicking the door open and we can start doing a lot of things. Well, and I think ultimately, too, is that that routine access to space platforms like SLS really don't offer that. Sure, it can do a lot of mass in one one shot, but 
when you can launch, you know, three or four different missions and get this, you know, equivalent amount of mass up there and then assemble in orbit, that's really when it starts to make more sense to do uh, different types of launches. And, you know, for additive manufacturing, that is just the frontier for that. It's it's the next, as my bosses like to say, it's the next, you know, great industrial revolution is going to come from 3D printing. Um, that be metals and plastics. I think you're right. And I think, you know, I personally look forward to the day where we don't need enormous heavy lift launchers, you know, whether they've been replaced by space-based resources being repurposed and used to, to do things, or whether it's a space elevator, a big tether up into the sky that's hauling stuff up and down every hour of every day. I don't care how it happens. It'd just be really great when we can stop having to count on huge chemical boosters, which... You know, they're beautiful. They're amazing. They refine them to a point that's very admirable, but it's not an efficient way to do business, you know? No. Well, and that's, you know, one of the things just to uh, throw in what the Europeans are doing as well is in the UK, they're working on Sabre the, or the Skylon. Maybe people have heard of that before, but mm-hmm. that air breathing rocket engine is that could be finally going into a test phase here in the next decade, which would be really kind of a shift in how we get to orbit if it ends up you know working as promised yeah and and i i've kind of tracked that with with one eye i haven't really kept my my view on it because they had so many false starts but for years in the big picture you know we want to have the stuff deployed out there hopefully built out there and then all we're doing is transporting human beings back and forth and some supplies because even the foodstuffs are being grown out there and that i think that won't get us to mars in the first jump i mean it's going to be expeditionary in nature for a few tries i'm convinced but once you start making space settlement a routine priority which is what the group I edited a magazine called Ad Astra for the National Space Society, and that's mm-hmm. their agenda is a settlement of space by human beings. Um, and there's different versions of that. Mine, mine is a little particular to the way I view the whole thing. I, I see a very strong relationship between humans and robots. Robots go first. Robots explore. Robots do the dangerous stuff. Robots build the initial infrastructure. And then humans go and it makes sense. Um, and I, and I think that's, that's the way it's going to have to happen, but, but you yeah. got to start by getting to the moon. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking, putting a stake in the sand here. Moon first. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> Send it's... the hate mail, you know, moon first <laughs> and then off to Mars, uh, when we're pretty sure we can do it and survive and make it routine. And if we can really start using, I realize it could be a diversion, a slowdown. I've heard Robert Zubrin talk and I do understand his point of view. But unless we can start maximizing our use of those resources on the moon or elsewhere, this isn't isn't going to be sustainable. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we go right to Mars and we just try to bypass the moon, we could be faced with an instance of, you know, hey, we've been there, but there's no there's no logistical train to keep the to keep the you know supplies moving to keep the people moving. So ultimately, it could end up slowing us down more if we decide to just go hey mars first to heck with everything else so i'm really you know i'm excited to see that companies are moving to the moon and to you know cislunar space as an important key to get to mars well in mars the whole solar system when i was a kid 
so that was I was born in 1956, really long time ago. <laughs> uh, the solar system is still kind of a mystery. You know, we didn't know that there wasn't life on Mars for sure. We didn't know the atmospheric pressure density. There's a lot of stuff we didn't know. So there was this kind of prevailing sense in the general public and even with some scientists of, you know, the terrestrial planets are kind of like different versions of Earth. <laughs> you know, a little, little less or more pressure in the case of Mars or Venus, temperature's a little different, but we could probably go figure it out. And then you get out into space and you start experiencing the radiation levels and you get to Mars and you start experiencing the temperature levels and there's almost no atmosphere. There's just enough to make landing really difficult but not enough to really help you do yeah. it. And certainly not enough to breathe. And then you get down onto the surface and you scoop up a handful of sand. And if you're Mark Watney in your, in your survival shelter trying to grow potatoes, you get a whiff of that Martian dust and your eyes are going to fizz up and your mucous membranes are all going to get raw and nasty because there's perchlorates in that soil. It's toxic. So space really doesn't like people very much and you have to do an awful lot to make it work. So I think as much as I'm a Mars exploration fan, I think settlement's a longer story. You know, we got to sure. really figure out how to do it the right way so that, as you said, we don't get this false start, get get all revved up and get started and then not being able to sustain it because it's too expensive. And we've seen the U.S. do that a number of times mm -hmm. in space, and I don't want to see it again. I agree. And I assure you the Chinese won't do that. Well, I mean, hopefully that whenever we go out to Mars is there is that cooperation between everybody because it really is in terms of where the money's at, it's going to have to be, I think, something that is multinational for sure. Otherwise, there's just not going to be the money for it. You're probably right. And I, and I think the, the smart money in terms of process is on multinationalism. I think it's going to be a tough bridge to cross with China just yeah. because of – ITAR. Uh, the laws. <laughs> ITAR, Wolf, and so forth here. And they're there for a reason. I mean, oh, yeah. we've had a lot of IP piracy going on. It still does. It's just a very different set of value systems. And when you talk to uh, Chinese people, not necessarily in the space program, but in business or government, and you talk about IP, if they're being honest, in a lot of cases, they shrug and say, that's just how we do it. Yeah. You know, we take what other people do and improve it. And then turn it back at a profit. <laughs> and when you kind of hear the genuine sentiment behind that, you go, uh, "Well, I guess I kind of see that." But, 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 <laughs> you know, but we're a capitalist society, and so are you now. And you need to. And then that's when it falls apart. Yeah. So ultimately, I think that's got to happen. But um, you know, it may be that uh, maybe that the the perfection of that idea is private corporations from different countries operating together sure. instead of government space agencies. I don't know. It's going to be really interesting for Europe because, uh, as I said, I interviewed a, a number of people for this book, probably about 40. A number of them were with the European and, and Japanese space agency. And I asked them about the entrepreneurial sector. And in both cases, they said, look, we don't have billionaires like you have in the US. We don't have that kind of tax structure. We don't have people that are able to and are willing to take those kinds of chances. For the most part, that's changing slowly. Yuri mm -hmm. um, Milner, notably. And um, it's going to be harder for us. So it's going very slowly. But we need to feel our way into the, the 2020s and try and figure out how we're going to accomplish that because that's obviously part of the story and to stay competitive it's going to take more than just operating 
the continuous national space program that most of those countries have done. So they're, they're aware. And I, I look forward to those results because that could really change a lot of things. Well, I mean, no matter where you look at it, whether it's, you know, it, governmental or private, the future really, you know, people like to say, oh, our golden days are behind us with Apollo. But my yeah. big contention over the, you know, since I started the podcast is our, our best days are ahead of us. We are in the golden age of spaceflight right now. So I, yeah. I'm really excited and I really appreciate how the book does show that we truly are living in that golden age of space flight. So Rod, I, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast and I look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you so much. Take care. A huge thank you to Rod for coming on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to all of his books. I definitely would recommend picking up a copy of Space 2.0 for yourself. It is a great read, whether you're an industry veteran or somebody that's just getting interested in space and the incredible work that's done by NASA and commercial partners. I do have a call number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment now on the podcast. Just call 720-772-7988 and leave a message. As always, links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave a review. iTunes reviews help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. Until next time... I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.